Well, we want to officially welcome you to part three of Bridgeway Christian Church's Faith and Culture series. Thank you for being here, and we believe that our first two weeks uh, that have started us off on the right foundation, and like we've said every week, we believe that this is worth the time that our staff and our church is taking to do this. It's worth your time, and we believe that it's honoring to our Lord and our Savior. And as we've talked about the last two weeks as well, we desire to engage these conversations with courage, to engage it with humility and prayerfulness, and that we would have a convicted civility as we're both teaching it and discussing it at our tables. And so we're seeking always to know how we as the body of Christ can learn and grow and live intentionally with that informed and convicted civility. Um, And that always begins with individuals with transformed hearts and powerful vision. And that's starting here with all of you. And we're gonna partner with the Lord to both learn and to act. And so let me pray for us as we start into tonight. Lord Jesus Christ, we honor your name that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. You are the creator of the universe. You are the almighty and the powerful one. We thank you for the mighty and redemptive power and action of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that those are the things that are our foundation and those are the things that lead us. And Lord, like every night, we ask for your wisdom. We ask for your discernment. We ask for your direction and for clarity. We ask that your Holy Spirit would speak through Lance and take all the information, all the research, all the conviction, Lord, and that it would be clear and it would be God-honoring and that, God, we would understand how you are guiding and leading us in this faith and culture that we are in. And so, God, we pray for for the guidance throughout it, and we pray, Lord, that you would be a part of our learning internally um, as we have discussion at our tables, Lord, and as we go from these week after week. And so we love you and we thank you for all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, let me uh, just review a little bit from last week. Um, in week two, um, we, we walked through another landscape that we were maybe a little more aware of since it was a biblical examination, but we were still maybe not familiar with all the passages and the context and the levels within the passages and so we walked through with wisdom and perspective on that. And so if you, if you remember, Pastor Lance walked us through a biblical examination looking at kind of three types of passages that come up on this. The first being extreme wickedness stories like the Sodom and Gomorrah story or the Levite and his concubine. Um, he talked about the rules and regulations of Levitical law and where those verses come into play. He also talked about the depravity of man passages and how those come out and how we understand those. And then he moved us into talking about what is God's created intent within all this. And he talked about what does it mean that we are created? What does it mean that we're created in God's image and likeness? He talked about the distortion that's happened with sin all across the board. And then he also talked about the restrictions that are in scripture about sexuality on a whole. And so all those kind of set a framework so that we could talk about having a balanced biblical view on sexuality And then he made a very clear walkthrough, and I hope you saw it in the additional resources we sent out, of what the Bible is relatively clear on when it comes to all the issues and the dynamics we're talking about. He also talked at the end about the absurdity that can happen when sinners are trying to order sin by importance and how we have to be cautioned with that. And then above all else, we talked about how God deals with brokenness and how God deals with sin. Because in the end, we're looking at that. We're looking at God's power and his redemption and his mercy in all things. And so as we walk into part three tonight, that's going to be focusing on gender identity. 
we want you again to use all the same principles we've been guiding you in, to listen deeply and to not block out anything that's being said or fixate on a certain part that's being said so you don't hear the other pieces. But with no further ado, let me introduce to the stage Pastor Lance Hahn. Man, we got a whole nother week of light, easy topics to talk about that, man, it just breathes in, naturally breathes right out, doesn't it? Uh, none of this is difficult, yeah? All right, well, obviously, uh, I'm joking around because this is all very serious. It's very serious to me because it involves people. It involves discussions about the Lord. Anytime people and the Lord are involved, I take it very, very heavy upon me to make sure that, that there is a loving spirit at all times. Um, I was talking with somebody recently at a conference I went to, and they said, so tell me about yourself. I said, you know what? I got two greatest passions, God and people. That's it. That's kind of my whole focus. And this involves uh, both of those. And so I'm, I'm honored to be able to talk about some difficult things with you. We're going to try to push you a little bit each and every time to be thinking into new ways. We're going to try to expand some of your uh, perspectives and teach you to, to think critically, all right? So let me just begin our time with a disclaimer that this portion is the newest and least understood part of our discussion. We're going to be addressing the T as well as the, a brief moment we'll be discussing the I in the now common LGBTQI. Now, we did not add in the I in our description because actually there are many letters that we could have included. Uh, we ended up stopped at the Q because they are the most broad categories to grab a lot of the things that we need to talk about. However, we will be talking about the I, which is intersex, uh, a little bit later, and I'll explain that. Now, the reason I'm giving you this disclaimer is because we're going to be light on stats because the idea of gender dysphoria, a feeling of being in the wrong gender or in the wrong skin, is only now being studied, right? Therefore, our presentation will be lighter on statistics and more on current observations. We are going to be bringing up a lot of questions to you without a lot of answers because not everybody has a lot of answers. So let's dive right into our topic and begin our time of study. All right, here we go. Let's talk about the definition of transgender. If we go through LGBT, we stop right there. The T stands for transgender. I want to give you a definition. Someone whose current gender identity is different from their assigned sex at birth, regardless of whether hormone or surgical intervention has taken place. In other words, there is a mismatch in perhaps anatomy and biology and that which is internal and how someone feels. It doesn't matter what they've gone through to try to rectify that. If there is a mismatch, we are dealing somewhat with the idea of transgender. Now, let's talk about some statistics, transgender statistics. Reliable data for children is almost non-existent. Uh, so most of the stats I'm going to give you have to do with adults. That's 18 and over. So let's dive into those. Transgender in the U.S., 0.6% of adults in the U.S. identify as transgender. Now, currently, that is 1.4 million people based on our current population. 
So what happens is many times you'll hear a stat and you'll go, oh, well, that doesn't sound very big. Why are we talking about it? And then I give you the actual numbers. And you go, wait, 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 I'm sorry, what did you just say? It's, it's a significant amount of people uh, that are walking in this road of transgender. So we want to take it very seriously. Let's talk about California. California is 0.35% of adults 18 to 70 that identify, once again, those that don't identify are not in the stats. Those that identify, that is approximately 92,000 people in California. Once again, a significant uh, population. There are more women than men. Women are two times more likely to identify as transgender than men are. And there is, the only stats we do have about children is that it is increasing in the numbers of children. 1% uh, of boys and 3.5% of girls reported, quote, wishes to be the opposite sex. Uh, there was a BBC report that was done not that long ago um, and it showed that the number of children under 10 years old who have been referred for help to deal with transgender feelings has, quote, more than quadrupled in the last six years. So once again, there is an increase, a spinning rise of transgenderism, especially in children, and we're going to be talking about that a lot more. Uh, once again, getting a broad view, let's talk about transgenderism throughout the world and throughout time. Um, our R&D team, which of course, those are the folks that are behind the scenes that help me with all my research and data and studies. Um, we quickly found 27 groups in different countries across the world that are actually transgender groups and dealt with according to their own cultures around the world. We do not have time to get into those, but what's really neat is that we have resources for you that we will be getting out to you right after this and it has a list of all 27 of those groups and how they're dealt with throughout different parts of the world. The current view in the world of transgenderism is stunningly welcome, um, which may come as a surprise to some of you, but there was a massive survey done of 23 different countries in 2016. In all 23 countries, majorities of the survey respondents supported important transgender rights, and we'll give you more examples in the research notes, but what I mean by important is protection from harm and protection from workplace discrimination. Out of those 23 countries, and they're all major countries, Spain was the most accepting, Russia was the least accepting. The reason I point that out is it has to do with where you were born as to what the interaction is with you maybe as a child or even as an adult, all right? Um, so let's recap a little bit about sexual identity versus gender identity. You always wanna clarify your terms because a lot of times we'll be talking over each other. Somebody comes into the conversation and they said, well, I, I feel this way and they're using the wrong term. You'll start responding and you're not talking about the same thing. So the more we can stop and define terms, the more healthy that we'll be. Let's talk about, on one hand, there is sexual orientation, also known as sexual identity, right? Now, that speaks to attraction and how you view yourself interacting romantically and sexually with those around you. For example, someone might be able to say, as a male, I am attracted to other males 
therefore my sexual orientation or my sexual identity is gay. That's one category. Sexual, uh, excuse me, gender identity is very different. That is how you view your own self as male, female, or something else. For example, you would say, I am biologically male, but I feel like I am a woman trapped in a man's body. Therefore, I see myself as female, so my gender is female. Once again, very different sexual orientation, gender identity, very different. We are going to be focusing on the gender identity part of it, which means that we're not going to be referring to too much about sexual attraction or orientation, right? So let's just keep those clear in our minds. Um, in speaking about that, the idea of sex and gender used to be interchangeable. So you would get uh, a little form and it would say, can you check your sex? And you would say male or female. Or they would even say, can you check your gender? And we would check male or female. It was always kind of interchangeable. That is not the case anymore. As a matter of fact, so traditionally, biological males would consider themselves male and traditionally, stereotypically, females would consider themselves females. Now, anything other than that was referred to as gender dysphoria, meaning that there was a mismatch. Something wasn't right. However, now, due to the higher rates of it occurring and the greater understanding of the experience, it's been brought into the normative in society. It's no longer considered a problem. What do I mean? Even the term gender dysphoria is no longer used as a negative concept. The concern is only a concern if you feel that it's a concern in modern medical manuals. Right? So for example, if you went up to somebody and, you, and they said, well, I actually have dealt with gender dysphoria, and you would say, oh, I'm so sorry. A lot of them would look at you and go, I'm sorry, what are you sorry about? I'm just explaining that I have a mismatch in my anatomy versus how I feel on the inside. That's not a negative, it just is what it is. Where you're thinking, oh, that is something wrong with you. Just understand, in today's world, it's only a problem if it causes you a problem. If you're okay with it, it's now considered a little bit more normative. All right, but I want to be very clear on something. The experiences of transgenderism are real, okay? I need to be abundantly clear that I firmly believe that feelings of gender dysphoria, feeling out of whack with one's biological anatomy are real and they need to be treated with seriousness, treated with compassion, and treated with humility. They cannot be brushed away. If your child comes to you and says, I do not feel right in my body, you don't just automatically dismiss them and say, it'll all work out, right? If an adult comes to you and says something and you go, well, you must be joking. Those are inappropriate responses. It needs to be treated with seriousness and with humility and kindness. All right, here's another disclaimer I need to make. Not all transgender or intersex people have the same experience. It is broad, it varies greatly. One may have slight gender dysphoria and be uncomfortable, while another may have significant gender dysphoria and wanna change everything about them. There is no one type. So if you go, oh, I know what you mean. No, you don't know what they mean. There's a very individual experience and we need to have some appreciation. Here's another thing I need to be clear about, especially if any of you right now, either listening to this, watching this here within our room, 
if you are wrestling with this due to uh, whether it's transgenderism or intersex, I need you to hear me. These experiences don't carry condemnation. What do I mean? God is neither surprised nor angry that someone struggles with gender dysphoria. He knows how it happens. He understands what to do next. He's not disappointed in you. There's nothing but love and compassion coming from the heart of God towards those who wrestle with this tension. God's love for us is not found in us being perfect. Very important. Ask any parent about their child that no matter what challenges a child may face, there is a love for that child. It's not based on whether the challenge is great or not so great, right? That's how God feels about us. God is very familiar with the human race. He's very familiar with a broken world, broken people. They're the only kind he works with. He knows about chemistry. He knows about emotions. He knows about epigenetics. He's the only universe's great scientist. He knows weakness. He knows repair. He knows what he's capable of. And he knows how to do the impossible. Impossible. Our struggles that we have as a human race, our struggles come from a world broken by rebellion and sin from the get-go. That's kind of an Adam and Eve thing. Now, I got to be real clear. We've only confirmed their decisions ever since. We can't just blame it on them and go, man, those people are stupid. They made some terrible decisions. We're still making terrible decisions, right? So they were our best shot and it didn't exactly work out, right? I want to be clear. God's disappointment is directed towards our enemies. Who are our enemies? The world, the flesh, the devil. We only have three. People are not our enemies, right? God is disappointed, yes, in our lack of drawing near to him for healing and restoration because we as a, as a race run away from him, but he's not disappointed that we struggle. That just is what it is. He knows we have to struggle. We're human. So once again, if we have to have a little bit of a weight come off of our shoulders and go, because I'm different, God doesn't like me, that's not really a thing, okay? He loves you. The big issue is what do we do next? The question is not, is transgenderism real? The question is not, is it happening? The question is, what do we do next? If there is a mismatch with the gender we feel and the gender we anatomically are, do we lean in and encourage the mismatch? Do we resist the mismatch? Is there something in between? That's what we're trying to seek wisdom on, right? That's why we're here. But we must take it seriously. Why? There is a significant danger that is associated with gender dysphoria. Why? What do I mean? 38 to 65% of transgender individuals experience suicidal ideation. Let me hit that stat again. 38 to 65% are contemplating suicide. They are nearly six times more likely to have attempted suicide. So when we have a mismatch of the inside to the outside, that tension is not light. That tension is intense. And it brings a lot of feelings and a lot of pain of trying to sort things out. So once again, we treat it with seriousness, we treat it with respect, and we treat it with compassion. Yeah, that is our calling. All right, so let's talk about where... Where's this all coming from, right? I talked about the, the surging 
statistics, what is happening? Let me say again, we don't know. And when I say we, I just mean like anybody that's looking into it, right? Scientists don't know, psychologists don't know, nobody knows what's going on. It's so complicated, people are scared to guess, and I am included in that. Um, I just want us to know that it does in fact exist and it's incredibly difficult to live with. Here's what we do know. We do know that the human body and the human makeup is complex and everyone goes on a relatively unique journey of discovering who they are and how they work. Every one of us has oddities, developmental confusion, and there are times that we all feel out of whack with what we think is normal. Some of that has to do with society. Some of it has to do with relationships. Some of it has to do with emotions. But some of it, actually a lot of it, really has to do with biology. Y'all, biology is super weird. So we're going to go back to biology, right? If you hated it in school, it's coming right back at you. All right? So I want to talk about um, feelings and the confusing biology. Um, once again, let's be clear, transgenderism is not predominantly sexual. And I'm going to say it so often because when we start getting into discussions about how to deal with children dealing with transgenderism, one of the most common responses from everybody is they're not even into sexual stuff yet. And so they dismiss it. It's got nothing to do with that. All right, cool. Now, does it link many times with people altering or changing or discovering sexual orientation? Yeah. But someone can be born biologically male, but feel entirely female and attracted to men, or they can be biologically male, feel like a female, but be attracted to females. In other words, one does not link to the other. It's just how you feel in your own skin. We must separate it, especially with children. So what happens is, is when a little one starts saying, mom, dad, I don't feel like... I'm a boy. I don't feel like I'm a girl. And that conversation is happening all over the world. It's one thing for the parent to go, you know, I've been tracking you and I can tell that that is the case with you. The minute you get out of the home and you start talking about neighbors and you start talking about everyone else making assumptions and looking in, they start playing the blame game. And they start going, well, that's only because of this, or that's only because of this. And everyone wants to excuse it away by thinking that we know the secret answer. And it usually has to do with that child must not know what they're talking about because you don't develop sexual feelings towards people until much later. But it's got nothing to do with it. The child is not explaining attraction the child is explaining self-sense. We as adults, we link our feelings and identity to who we are attracted to because we're already operating off a foundation of who we think we are. Children don't even have that foundation yet. They're not getting into the attraction conversation. They're simply talking about whether they feel like what they're described to believe they should feel as the gender that they told they are. Now, if we're going to talk about biology, I'm going to jump to the most extreme category of biology having an effect on how we feel, because I want to talk for a moment about the I that I promised you I would talk about, LGBTQ, I, 
I stands for intersex. And although this is a small percentage of those that are in the transgenderism category, which is why they have their own letter, the prevalence is a little surprising. For example, many reports and research has been done on the prevalence of babies born with hard to differentiate genitalia, right? So in other words, you get the little ultrasound and they go, you go, is it a boy or a girl? And they're like, I don't know. And you're like, oh, they must just not be good at their sonogram stuff. Nope, you can't tell. When the baby is born, many doctors automatically go, and it's a... Now they will tend to tell you what it is or they'll have to wait for a little later and say, we'll get to that. And you go, well, how, how common is that? Visible, hard to distinguish genitalia happens in one in 1,500 births. That's a lot. One in 1,500 births, okay? But here's what's interesting. Those are only the ones that are visibly hard to tell. If we're going to talk about subtle differences, if we're going to talk about differences that come out later in life, meaning you don't even know that something's going on until puberty hits, they can't tell that. The doctor can't even tell anything's different. If we lump those statistics in there, the statistic of population of intersex is roughly one and a half to 2% of the population. Now, why is that important? It's the same statistic for redheads in the United States. Now, not worldwide. Worldwide, redheads are 10% of the population. In America, they're 2%. So if we're talking about, do you know somebody that has red hair? Well, if you're in America, that's a pretty high stat. Same stat. So in other words, as much as we want to say, yeah, the whole hermaphrodite thing, the intersex having hard to distinguish genitalia, oh, you have a penis and a vagina, that kind of stuff. Although the extreme cases are smaller, they're still out there. And there's a lot of variation in between. All right. So having said that, we'll put that aside for a moment. We'll say, what about the rest of us? Just because you don't have that particular challenge doesn't mean that you and I didn't go through confusing biology and we're constantly guessing, right? Not a lot is concluded. It's so complex about how we develop. Let me read this, this quote. This is from the National Institute of Health. It's an article that they wrote. It says, biological factors, psychological factors, as well as social factors have equal importance in determining the development of sexuality in adolescence. Other than the biological, psychological, and social factors, many more factors such as political, legal, philosophical, spiritual, ethical, and moral values significantly influence the sexuality development. So, what makes us who we are today? Boy, it's complicated. That's what's really important for us to understand. It's not so easy. But I will tell you, while we're on the biology side, Hormones matter a lot, all right? Hormones matter a lot. We do know that hormones, hormones dramatically affect how we feel inside, how we develop outside. They're a key part of the sexual development process. And when I say sexual development, I'm talking about whether we are boys or girls or whether or not we feel one way or we feel another way. I'm not talking about sex, obviously, in a romantic sense. So let's talk about what are hormones, right? Once again, if you tried to escape biology, it's coming right back. 
What are hormones? They're created in the endocrine glands and hormones are chemical messengers in the body that control most of our major bodily functions. Okay, so they're the little ones moving around telling our body what to do. Now, I will just highlight this. You can look at the stats more on your resource sheet later, but one in 15,000 women have CAH, which is that females are bathed in testosterone in the womb. Now, what do you think it's going to do and make you feel if you predominantly have estrogen and testosterone all hitting you at the same time? How are you going to feel? Okay, once again, hormones matter in how we feel. All right, so let's talk about types of hormones. The two most pertinent ones to our study are the ones that we're familiar with, right? Estrogen, um, right, and testosterone. Estrogen or estradiol is the main sex hormone in women. It causes puberty, prepares the body and uterus for pregnancy. It regulates the menstrual cycle. For guys, it's testosterone. It's the main sex hormone in men. It causes puberty, increases bone density, triggers facial hair growth. Clearly, I didn't get enough. <laughs> I can only grow right around here. Can't nod a lot here. Very splotchy. All right. It causes muscle mass growth and it causes strength. Now, what controls the hormones? There's two pieces to it. In our brain, we have a portion in the very back called the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus runs the pituitary gland right next to it. It's the size of a pea. It's known as the master gland because of how much it regulates the body on what it needs more of, what it needs less of. It secretes hormones into the body for regulation through the bloodstream. Listen to what this little pea-sized gland regulates. Here we go. Sex hormone levels from ovaries and testes, egg production, stimulates breast milk production, stimulates growth in childhood, controls the stress hormone cortisol, it regulates metabolism, it regulates your energy. Once again, if any of that is off, you're gonna feel a whole lot different. Hormones matter a lot. It's trying to keep it in stasis. It's trying to balance you out. However, when they don't function well, the body doesn't do well, things don't feel right. A key factor of hormone release, whether or not your body releases hormones or not, is the environment inside your system and the environment on the outside. For example, malnutrition will dramatically affect how your body releases things when it releases things. Why? Because the environment is disrupted, right? And your hormones affect your sex drive significantly. Research has shown that a high level of prolactin or low level of testosterone or high level of estrogen can all lead to a low sex drive, which affects what? Attraction. If I can mess with your chemicals, I can mess with your feelings. If I can mess with your chemicals, I can mess with your attraction. Why? Y'all, we are an ecosystem. Every bit of us is connected to everything else. Why are we the way we are? We don't know but we know that we're interrelated. We know that we're interconnected. We know that everything that we go through has an impact on everything else. And I just need you to know this, hormones start affecting you in the womb. You didn't even get out yet and you already got all kinds of stuff going on, right? And here's the thing, we're always looking at everybody else going, man, oh, that person's kind of messed up. Y'all, we're all messed up. 
What I think would be the best ever is just playing a video of every single one of us in middle school. <laughs> and I just want to go back through the development process of you and how smooth and easy that transition was, <laughs> right? Uh, I think we all realize it was a bit of a bumpy ride, yeah? All right, so let's talk about that sexual development or biological formation is a lifelong process, but it's heavily front-loaded. It starts in the womb following conception. It continues all the way till you die. So we always think, yeah, 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 everything happens in, in, in puberty and then we're the same. No, you're not. You're still developing until you die. Now, is it heavier at the beginning? Absolutely. But if you think that your body is constant all the way through, ask anyone who's gone through menopause. They will disagree with you. So let's go through a, a review on how we're developed front-loaded in the womb, in utero sexual development. Here we go. Does everybody remember, and this is all kind of one of those fun little things that you learned in class, does everybody remember that a woman's egg contains one X chromosome if everything is normal? So she's got an X, and basically we're just waiting for what the sperm's gonna bring to the party, right? So if the sperm brings another X into the nucleus of the original egg cell, then you have XX, and that equals biologically female. If, however, a Y is brought in, you now have an XY chromosome, and that means that now a male baby biologically will begin to develop. Now, you may not have known this. At first, boys and girls appear identical. Right? Now you go, well, chromosomes, they're, they're different. Okay, we'll get into that because intersex is a distortion. XXY, it's a bunch of different things. We don't have time to get into that. But for all of maybe the majority of us in this room, you did not have any difference in your gender until what? The second half of week six. And what happens is if there's a Y chromosome and it starts to go male, a gene called SRY kicks in and it starts a whole process of bending you and making you more male. If you don't have that turn on, then the female stops the production of becoming male and stays female and it goes a different route. It all has to do with one hinge of that one gene SRY, whether it turns on or does not turn, right? All right. Now, having said all of that, once again, that all happened in the womb. It's not like things were normal in the womb, but once we get out, it only gets weirder, right? I wanna talk about the crazy process of growing up. All right, now, childhood studies show that there is no awareness of gender in infants. They're not aware whether they're boys or girls or whatever. They start to acknowledge their own gender as early as three years old, and soon thereafter, they can recognize the gender in somebody else. Like, oh, I guess you must be a girl or you must be a boy. One thing I do want to be clear on is the whole Freud thing has been debunked, right? I don't know if you all got a bunch of Freud when you were growing up in school and it was like, there's this stage and this stage and all that. Freud was real early on and didn't have a whole lot to back up what he was doing. And so pretty much if you go through psychology today, nobody's real big on Freud anymore. So let's go ahead and take his stuff and, and throw it out a little bit. But... I will say this, when we are talking about development, remember, transgenderism is not about sexual attraction at this point, it's self-identity. 
However, what's happening in your body really affects your mind and your heart, right? So for example, if I develop like all the other boys, I'm going to feel more peaceful about myself. If I develop differently, I'm going to have a different view of myself, right? Wow, I'm not as big and strong as those guys. Maybe I'm not male enough. There's a lot of questions that come up. We all had them. If you didn't have them, I don't know what's going on with you. You're the oddity, <laughs> right? The rest of us were asking a lot of questions. So adolescence is a wild ride. The most major sexual development takes place in puberty. But do you realize that even your personality matters? There's studies done on personality impacts. Introverts go through adolescence different than extroverts go through adolescence. There's social elements, what social group you were born into and how they interact with you and what they believe is male and female has a massive amount of impact on who you think you are. Even in terms of parenthood, for example, many studies done about bonding with parents. When healthy bonding between parents and children don't occur and a deficit of love and security is created, it can alter the development of a child. Everything matters. Now, I want to be real clear on something because I mentioned parenting, right? We're going to be talking a little bit more about the role in parenting of a child that goes to LGBTQ uh, next week. However, I want to highlight there is a lot of unnecessary and unhealthy blame that keeps getting thrown on parents whenever a child struggles. And I want to be clear on this. We'll get into it more, but I want to be clear. You could be parent of the year. You could be the parent of the century. You could do everything right, and your child is still allowed to struggle and be a human being, right? When we get into these self-blame things and we get into the self, and it must be me, it must be me because I'm the parent, I'm supposed to take care of my child and control. You don't get control. That's not yours. Jesus gave you influence, but he didn't give you control. So let's be very gentle when we start talking about parents and parenting styles. But we do know that I do want to talk a little bit more about children and this issue of transgenderism. So transgenderism and children through adolescence. Okay, sexual orientation. Remember I told you the difference. There's gender identity and sexual who they're attracted to. Sexual orientation development in adolescence is ongoing and it's all over the place. What does it mean? Many adolescents may be unsure of their sexual orientation, while others were clear since childhood. Immediately, they know exactly what's going on. But scientific studies have shown that it doesn't just stay constant. Not for everybody. If you had a constant experience, right on. That works great for you. The rest of us were all over the place trying to figure out who we're attracted to going through puberty, going through all those crazy years. In the same way, Gender identity is not constant. What do I mean? Gender variance of how you feel inside as it relates to expressing and exploring gender identity and gender roles is a part of normal development. It's okay and normal to try to sort stuff out. That doesn't mean something's wrong. A relatively small percentage, according to studies, of gender-variant children develop an adult transgender identity. They're just sorting stuff out. 
if at any point we took within our puberty process and picked one random point and said, this is who you're going to be for the rest of your life, I don't think that we would make very wise decisions. Why? Because we're pretty much here and there and everywhere. That's normal. So once again, if your child or you being younger are dealing with a lot of, I don't know who I am, and this is really confusing for me, and this is, that's entirely normal. Yeah. Will it calm down? It does in an awful lot of us, but not always. And that's why we have to have these conversations, all right? Okay. My big concern, however, is we need to have a caution, and we'll talk about this in a moment. We need to have a caution with locking down too quickly with our kiddos because our kiddos are changing so fast. All right. I want to talk about the impact of some current legal LGBTQ issues um, because they're going to tie into some of the things that we need to talk about both this week and next week. So let's talk about them. Um, First thing I want to talk about is some government things. So we had a significant amount of LGBTQ-related bills brought up to the California Assembly in recent years. I don't know if you guys heard that. Usually it's on Facebook, right? Somebody sends out some scary Facebook, everything's changing, right? And then everybody forwards it to everybody else. Okay, so I was in the middle of all that. Part of our R&D team was studying that. Most of those changes, or most of those suggested changes to the legislature had to do with what's called sexual orientation change efforts. In other words, reparative therapy. There was a lot of stuff talk about that, but a few of them involved our educational system. Now, I have to admit that in reading them out front, I was uncomfortable with a lot of the changes they were seeking to, be, to, to make, right? Why? I felt like they weren't healthy for everyone, and that concerned me. So I look into them a little bit deeper. Let me explain to you that out of all the ones that were put out there, most of the major bills were delayed or stopped in process. Now, I do want to say a word about this because some people cheered the bills and some people did not like the bills. I believe that the majority of LGBTQ bills presented are done so with a good heart to protect people. Okay, I believe that very firmly. Things like anti-bullying, things like making sure someone is safe, making sure that people have the same opportunities. Now, this is not just an American struggle. Whenever you bring up legislative efforts in order to try to curb behavior, it gets a little messy, right? Give me an example. Pastor Matt, who is a partner with me in this this endeavor here, uh, he used to live in New Zealand. In New Zealand, they went through a whole process of trying to legislate anti-smacking laws, right? Now, once again, you get out of our culture and you hear a phrase like, don't smack your children. And you're like, well, that does sound bad. It's a terrible idea. They meant spanking. So they went through a whole process to legislate no spanking. You cannot spank your children. It's against the law. Well, the church immediately erupted. And they got all up in a dither and they got super mad and how dare you step in our parenting. We believe that, and there was a lot of nasty things said. But if you realize where it came from, there was abuse going on and they were looking at the abuse and they were trying to put something on the books to stop the abuse. Once again, I think if we're, if we're thinking clearly, we're against abuse. 
And there's a lot of people that are finding things that they see abusive and they're trying to stop it. Now, is it abuse? Is it okay to spank your child? I would imagine if we got into that debate right now, we have a tremendous difference all the way across this room. Some people think it is, some people think it's not. But once again, they were trying to legislate it and say there's one way to look at it. In the same way, I would just say that as I'm watching a lot of these LGBTQ bills come in, there's a really good heart. But when we start legislating things, it starts getting a little bit tricky and we start reacting off of it. I want to talk about the changes in education. Perhaps the most progressive advancing arena in this area is in our education system, particularly in California. Although it seems to have been started by a desire to protect children from bullying, which I love, and encourage understanding, which I love, in my opinion, we went a little bit too far. I want to tell you why. Do you know how the school system works? Because you're going to come back to me and you're going to go, well, what's going on in our schools? Depends on your school. Why? So the U.S. government has a general basic foundation that people need to adhere to. They then hand it to the states and go, well, you determine how you want to do it. The states then take it and say, you individual counties determine how you want to do it. So everyone adds a little bit to it, but ultimately the individual county picks the textbook. They pick what they want to teach or what they don't want to teach. They get to pick on whether or not they're going to highlight this or highlight that. So, for example, many of you live in Placer County. I live in Sacramento County. We're actually right next to each other. We don't have the same textbooks. So if you come to me and go, well, what are our textbooks saying? I'm going to go back to you and go, I have no idea what's your textbook saying. There are some very helpful educational codes that have been brought in most of the educational changes that deal with LGBTQ are good and helpful. Why? They talk about fair treatment. Let me give you an example. The new one that came in this year, in the recent years, was all California community colleges must have at least one employee as a point of contact for LGBTQ needs. What's wrong with that? Nothing. It's awesome. Second one, all uh, school systems have to develop a policy on pupil suicide prevention for grades 7 through 12, including the high-risk group of, quote, LGBTQ. Anybody got a problem with trying to stop suicide? Nope. Third one. All school systems have to adopt a policy against bullying for all groups, including LGBTQ. Is that a problem? Nope. So this is the stuff we're talking about that's coming through, and people are going, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen? Hold on. Relax, there's a whole bunch of healthy stuff going on. However, here's my concern. My concern in this is that in our system, we have begun to alter the bigger picture and demand that all children have to work through issues that a select few have to go through. That is a concern for me. Now, I love the heart of it. I love the idea that there would be a mandated, everyone's got to get on the same page so that a child does not get hurt. Love that. How does it work out? It's complicated. But to begin to bring in everybody having to wrestle with the same issue when they haven't thought about it yet is concerning to me. The reason why I'm bringing this up, you're going, well, that sounds awfully random. It, of course it's not. If you've been in watching the news, it just happened at Rockland Academy right? We just went through this right in our backyard. It became national news when a kindergarten uh, student transitioned. 
And then the idea was, hey, if I transition, everyone's going to treat me different. They're going to be mean to me. And so the idea was, they said, well, how do we help that student? So they read a book on transgenderism in the kindergarten. A bunch of parents got very concerned. Why is my daughter or why is my son coming back and asking me now if they're fluid in their gender? They're in kindergarten. And this big thing exploded. Here's, do I think that's the right way to handle it? You know what, honestly, walking through it because I ended up getting involved in some of the middle of that, I gotta tell you, I have a tremendous amount of respect for that system, them trying to sort it out, and I have a lot of humility. Do I think that that's the right way to handle it? Personally, I do not. However, I love the heart that is trying to drive it. So this is what makes it hard for me. I want people safe but how do you protect everybody at the same time? That's really hard, right? I just want you to appreciate the complexity. I'm not very comfortable with some of the sex ed pieces that are taught of saying all sex is the same, it doesn't matter whatever's going on, all activity is equal. I don't think that that's very healthy. Once again, I come from a slightly different perspective, a biased perspective, but I want you to be very careful to not overreact. The church is famous for overreacting off everything. Y'all, I got a, a sneak peek at the new textbook for high school history. I got to go look at it. There's eight references to LGBTQ in there. And all you're gonna hear is the new textbooks are all about LGBTQ. I looked at all eight references. I read through the entire sections. You know what they said? There are LGBTQ people. They have been around in history. These are their leaders. This is what has occurred. Wow, what do you think? There you go, that was it. All right, so once again, please stop overreacting until we know the facts and we've looked at some of these pieces a little bit deeper. Is it complicated? Yes. Are the school systems trying to do their best to try to make sure people are okay? Yeah. Is it always handled right? No, of course not. You think, y'all, you guys complain about how I run the church. Come on, right? No matter whoever's in charge is in trouble for something, all right? But I want to talk, and this is where I want to really start to sink in a little bit more. I want to talk about identity. When we start talking about gender identity, something moves in my heart, and it makes me very uncomfortable. Why? Well, let's be honest. Christianity is odd. Christianity is odd because it says that you forsake all things for the primacy of an identity in Christ. Do you understand how weird that is? Nobody else in the world is saying that. We say that. Our Bible says that. Forsake all things for the primacy of an identity in Christ in light of a transcendent God. There is no cultural basis for that. There is no other societal group that's trying to say that. The rest of the world identifies themselves by what has caused the most impact in their life, good or bad. It could be what has caused tension. It could be what has caused victory. It could be what has caused hurt. What do I mean? Some people identify themselves as handicapped. Right out, why? It's the most significant thing that has ever happened to them. People treat them different because they're in a wheelchair. So if you talk to them and you say, tell me a little bit about yourself, that you say, I am handicapped. That's my identity. 
someone else may say, I define myself by my ethnicity. I'm black, I'm white, I'm Native American, and we define ourselves by our ethnicity. Other people, it's simply, I'm an athlete because of what I can do, my skills. Everyone has treated me different because I'm very good at this. These are all societal's ways, society's ways of defining who am I? What if the most significant area of your life is sexuality and gender? That will naturally become who you define yourself to be. But that's not God's way. Please don't let a part of you define all of you. I don't care who you are. If you consider yourself a victim because you've gone through bad things in your life, please do not walk through life saying, I'm a victim. That is not your identity. That is a part of you. Don't let it define all of you. You are a complex, beautiful human being. Neither sexual identity nor gender identity, neither of those is the most important thing about a person. The most important thing about a person is their relationship to God. I want to talk about a biblical identity in Christ. Y'all, I don't care who you are. I don't care what you wrestle with. I don't care what you consider your identity to be. I believe this is far more healthy. So I want to share this with you. Our biblical identity in Christ, it's about Him. God is the creator of the world and all things. The grand story is about Him. Our reason and purpose is defined by him. God created mankind for two primary reasons, relationship with him and glory to himself. Our existence is based on those things. Our worth. As human beings, we have infinite worth because we're made in the image of God. God's infinite love. God's love for us was demonstrated by Jesus Christ coming down from heaven, living a perfect life for us, dying on the cross to pay for the sins of the world. That's how much he loves you. That's your identity. It's based on Jesus' trade via the cross. Jesus offers his perfect life in trade for our broken, sinful ones so that we might be connected to God forever. Amen? That's your identity. This is your identity, fully forgiven and under grace. His sacrifice allows us to be fully forgiven for our sins, to start a new life, and our new way of living is under a permanent state of relationship and grace. That's your identity. It is based on the process of being perfected. As Christians, we are remade as children of God, perfect in our inner being and being perfected on the outside as the Holy Spirit leads us into transformation. That's who you are. You're a work in progress. Our identity needs to be based on being free to live in him and for him. Now that we are fully loved, now that we are fully accepted by God, we are able to live free from fear we're able to be free to live the life that God intended in the first place, which is a life completely lost in him, living for him, covered by him. That is who you are. And this indeed is a surer identity. In Christ, you find an identity that's immovable. Unlike the failure of attaching to things of this world, identity as a child of God is the healthy identity. Everything else has baggage. So whoever you are, 
the most important thing about you is being a child of God, not all the other details. This identity must be paramount and the basis for all self-identification. This is where we begin and end. Now, having said that, let's return to our conversation of gender. The importance of gender, we're gonna, we talked a lot about it in week two. So I'm gonna talk a lot about gender as we start to wrap this thing up. Um, and I wanna push you to consider things differently. This is a warning, right? Because I wanna begin to stimulate your thinking to start reordering some categories in your mind. So what we're gonna do is as always, we anchor into the word of God so that we can do discovery in a healthy way, right? You anchor in the word of God and then you can go run and sort stuff out, right? And you figure out if it matches against God's word. So let me reset our anchor, ready? Male and female matters to God. It is a God design. It is a spiritual construct, not merely biological, but please don't let it be defined by traditional stereotypes. That's what I'm going to start messing with you about. Here's my concern. Because people have not felt understood and they have felt underrepresented and they have felt stifled and choked, they have then pressed and said, let's just forget all these designations. Let's just throw everything out. Forget gender, forget everything. Let's just deal with each other as individuals. That sounds nice. The problem is it's incredibly dangerous ground to live on in full relativism. Why? Because you can't put any code on conduct. If we all are just who we are, then there's no rules. I don't believe that's where we need to be in society. We can't throw out all designations. There's so much said about what seems or feels natural, but listen to me. Natural is not the end of the conversation. It's the beginning of the conversation. How do you feel? What's natural to you? Okay, now, what do we do with that? Everyone keeps saying, well, this is natural to me. Great, that's not the end of the conversation. We got a lot more to talk about. But do you understand why the world would disagree with the church? If you are not created, if it is truly evolution, then who's to say anything is right? Who's to say that anything has purpose? Who's to say anything has a designation? What are you talking about with a category? What is male? What is female? What is anything? If you're not created, you got nothing to go on. So just understand that when you're discussing something with someone that doesn't have a biblical worldview like you do, understand why you're missing so much. You're coming from a different mindset. Is yours right or wrong? Ultimately, we'll find out when we pass away, right? But just understand why it's so hard to talk and find a middle ground to talk through. All right, here we go. Does the Bible say anything about transgenderism? Yes and no. Does it? All right. Well, let me grab the one that everybody likes to jump to. Deuteronomy 22.5. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to Yahweh your God. Anybody have a guess on what that means? Me either. Great. I have no idea, y'all. The context is so unclear, you can make zero determinations on this. 
It, nobody even knows what it's talking about. So does it really say anything about transgenderism? Ah, not really. So we have to dig into different areas. All right, let's get right back to our topic before we finish up the gender stereotypes. I wanna talk about the danger of permanent change. I wanna talk about sex or gender reassignment surgery. In 2016, gender reassignment surgeries went up 19% from 2015. So in 2015, 2,740 people went through sexual reassignment surgery. In 2016, 3,256 went through it. So these are thousands and thousands of people going through the surgery. If you remember the Johns Hopkins University story, right? They pioneered in sex change operation in 1966. They were the first ones to do it. In 1979, it stopped and was shut down due to John McHugh, the chief of psychiatry. He cited that although the surgeries went well, it didn't ultimately bring help or change to the patient. But if you didn't know this, after 38 years, they now do it again. So once again, different leadership came in. They said, yep, I think it's a great idea. So Johns Hopkins does sexual reassignment surgeries again. The reason why some of you may know this is you know Cy Rogers' story. Cy Rogers is a Christian man who speaks on sexual health issues, just in general, healthy sexuality, no matter what it is. And he has a tremendous story that he was going in for sexual reassignment surgery to Johns Hopkins the year that they stopped doing it. And that changed the course of his life. Uh, he did not follow through with it. And indeed, he ultimately had a very different outcome. Uh, you'll find uh, a website not exactly the most professional looking website, um, but you'll find Walt Heyer's story in a website called Sex Change Regret. Sex Change Regret, it's those that have gone through it and then went, well, that's not exactly, it didn't solve the hole in my heart, and so it didn't, it didn't fix things for me. Here's what I wanna just say about that. When you have a changing, morphing human make permanent decisions, it makes me nervous because I'm a little bit different Wednesday than I am on Thursday than I am on Friday. And so I get very nervous about permanent surgeries. I just wanna, I wanted to cast that out. But then how do we live, right? I mean, if indeed, if we have so many variations on what people think and how they feel, what do we do? Do we throw all gender out altogether? Do we scrap the framework of how human beings relate to each other? Do we redefine the family unit? Do we stop all expectations? No, I don't think that's healthy. I don't think that's right but we need to remove unnecessary obstacles while our children are discovering how God made them. We need to stop assuming we have all the answers and that prior history has solved everything. What do I mean? This is where I'm gonna push you. I wanna talk about a demand for rethinking gender stereotypes. Once again, I believe God made male and female. I'm just not so sure that we have figured out what that means. And I think we've done a very poor job. So we're trying to get you to think critically and wisely about how we think of gender and roles. There are two areas I would like to highlight for you. The first one, I'm not gonna spend a whole lot of time, although it's very important, and that is equality of genders. The second one that I'm gonna spend the rest of our time on is definitions of gender. So let's talk about the first thing first. I wanna talk about that boys and girls, men and women, are different in function, but equal in worth. Why is this so important? 
I want to tell you a story about the Bernicias of Eastern Europe. In Albania, Kosovo, Serbia, and Montenegro, since the 1400s, there has been a class of women that have made permanent changes to have a vow of chastity and a vow to become male for the rest of their lives. They make it around 17 years old. And they live their entire lives as men. They put away everything feminine. They put away everything that has to do with girls. And they live as men for the rest of their lives. Why? Well, there was an article recently done. And there was two ladies that were talked about. Uh, there's fewer than 50 of these folks now. But Diana's in her mid-60s. She made the change at 17, quote, to have more freedom. Refers to herself in the masculine, looks like a man, and is the head of her community. Stana refers to herself as female, but looks entirely male, made the decision early because, quote, a girl is not worth as much as a boy. Today, she's the man of the family. She is the man of the community. I'm trying to use an extreme example to make a very poignant point, which is what? These women would rather change their entire gender just to get respect in their community. What in the world is happening when women feel so less than that they would rather change everything about them just so they can get a little respect and be heard? That's extreme. Is it still happening? Yeah. So what do you think subtly going on in our society right now? All right, so let's go to the major area that I'm going to cover as we close out, and that is definitions of gender. I want to talk about expanding our categories of boys and girls. Um, the World Health Organization has written report after report after report about how they have to go around the world today and clean up the mess that boys and men are making all over the world. What do, what do I mean? They have huge reports on how to handle every culture that boys are doing violence, promiscuity, and risk-taking behavior. Why? Because it's expected that's what boys do. So we actually have the World Health Organization writing manuals on how to make men mellow out. Why? Because there's an expectation. They said there's no manual written that, that tribal human beings, tribal expectations are more caught than taught. You do what your dad does. You do what other people talk about. When you do something and you don't get in trouble for it, you do it again. And we create these horrific examples of what men are. And it's unhealthy all the way across the world. You think that America doesn't share in this? You guys, the idea of boys will be boys led to the Me Too movement. Are you kidding me? Why in the world were men not holding men accountable? Dude, we were excusing each other. And as a matter of fact, our moms were excusing us. Why? Because boys will be boys. That's just what they do. The problem is the tough fighters who we are so proud of turn into domestic violent partners. They turn into gangs. The guy that has sex with a million women is considered a player. That's cool, but then it only turns into STDs and unwanted pregnancies. It's not healthy. But what about when it's not obviously violent and damaging, right? What about the more subtle stuff? I think that that whole view is actually changing about the blatant stuff. I don't think that men are necessarily championed as much to have sex with as many people as they can. I don't think so. But I'm concerned with the harmful stereotypes that subtly reinforce unhealthy expectations. What do I mean? 
Let's go back to 1950s. In 1950, there was a different world. I'll give you an example. Approximately 30% of women worked in 1950. 80% of men did. Okay? So, whatever your view was, you based it on what was happening. Problem is, in 2015, 70% of women work and 70% of men work. Different world. But the stereotypes stuck. What do I mean? Here you go. The husband has value, has a job, he keeps the family afloat. The wife stays at home, takes care of the children, and dotes on her man. Men are the smart ones. Women are silly, uneducated gossips. Men are strong. Men love sports. Women are weak and only care about their appearance. Boys are never, can never be afraid. They can never get hurt. They must never cry. Girls are scared of spiders. They're delicate, and they got to cry about everything. Boys like dinosaurs, computers, and guns, and girls like dolls, puppy dogs, and frilly things. And you go, oh, that's silly, Lance. Let me tell you the unintended consequence of that. Ready? Women couldn't vote for a really, really long time. Why? Because men are the authority voice. Higher education isn't for girls. Why would they need it? Women couldn't enter the workforce. When they finally did, they don't make as much money as men because it's assumed they don't bring the same qualities to the table. All women are expected to be nurturing and love kids, so if the kids are messed up, it's mom's fault, not dad. Men are not allowed to cry. They are supposed to stuff their feelings, so now PTSD for first responders and soldiers continues to skyrocket, and now men are four times more likely to commit suicide than women. Women should be the cooks and maids in the home. Men should shoulder all the financial responsibility. Women are supposed to focus on being pretty so they can be stared at. And boys are supposed to chase after them while caring little for their own appearance. Men shouldn't be nurses, fashion designers, dancers are in the kitchen, while women shouldn't be doctors, mechanics, sports analysts, or in the presidency. So why this matters so much to me is that we only give our kids two radically stereotypical categories to live in. We're forcing our children to make whole gender jumps because they can't fit into their category. You're either a macho man or a frilly girl. If you're neither of those, you might need to question your sexuality. That angers me. We're using outdated social stereotypes to tell our kids who they are. Just because a woman isn't nurturing and wants to wear jeans that makes her a lesbian? Just because a man loves the arts, that makes him gay? Okay, that's absurd. The APA, the American Psychological Association, said that unhealthy stereotypes for men is the cause of almost all the problems with men. I disagree with that. I think that's way extreme. However, after they released their findings, I don't know if you guys saw it, but Gillette Razor Company came out with a new set of commercials. What was their new set of commercials? They were saying, hey, Instead of just being the tough guy that hurts everybody, how about you rethink what being men is? And they got tons of backlash, right? They were calling men to stand up against toxic masculinity, to hold each other accountable, stop excusing sexual harassment. But they got blasted for saying, now you're just, you're against stoicism, competitiveness, dominance, and aggression. Okay, everybody's talking about this stuff. What do you think? I'm going to tell you what I think. I'm going to tell you that we actually need to be healthier. That's what I'm telling you. So what would that look like? I want to talk about creating room to live. 
We need to broaden our categories of what male and female can be to include a variety of skill sets and character expectations without demanding they have to be LGBTQ and question their sexual orientation or gender identity. So let's play this game together. Why can't men be in fashion? What are you wearing right now? Let's talk about this for a second. Some of the greatest fashion designers are men, right? Sure. You got Donna Karen, Vera Wang, Coco Chanel, right? Female, right? But I knew way more male designers on the list than I ever knew females. All right, Ralph Lauren, Giorgio Armani, Calvin Klein, Tommy Hilfiger, Pierre Cardin, Perry Ellis, Jimmy Choo. These are all dudes. But if dudes are not allowed to try on clothes and play fashion, how the heck are they supposed to be good at fashion? That's a little weird. Why can't women lead the military? Why can't they race cars? You see, Ann Dunwoody became the first four-star general in the U.S. Army. Did the Army fall down? No. Danica Patrick, NASCAR racer. But that's not a place for girls, right? Why can't men be in the kitchen? If the kitchen is supposed to be where all the girls hang out, then what happened with Wolfgang Puck, Gordon Ramsay, Jamie Oliver, and every other great chef that's a dude? Right? Why can't women be in the highest offices of business? Women were kept out of the workplace forever, so no one even knew what they were capable of. They didn't even want to admit it. When we got around to it in the 1960s, they hit the ground running. Here you go. Women CEOs, General Motors, IBM, Pepsi, PG&E, Oracle, they're all run by women. And they're doing amazing. World leaders, everybody remember Margaret Thatcher, right? She was groundbreaking with England, right? But now Angela Merkel of Germany is the chancellor Running Germany, a quick look shows 23 nations are led by women at the highest levels. Their president, whatever you want to call it, 23 nations are run by women. We're just now getting to that idea. Why can't men be in the arts? What, the arts are only for girls? Girls paint? Or does Picasso and Rembrandt and Da Vinci and Salvador Dali and those guys come to mind? But of course, girls just like to dance, right? Except for Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire and Sammy Davis Jr. and Justin Timberlake. <laughs> we gotta let personality and diversity shine. You see, I'm saddened by the natural groove of a young person not allowed in the categories that God already gave them. I want them to be who they are while still being allowed to be in the groupings that God provided. Because when you keep throwing them into other categories, I don't think it's fair for effeminate boys to only be allowed to hang out with girls because they get shoved out of their group. I don't think it's fair for all girls that are tomboys to have to go over and hang out with only boys. That's not healthy for them. They need to be able to have people in their own gender to be able to hang out and talk with. But we need to start refiguring out what does it mean to be male and female? Why can't you be heterosexual, why can't a heterosexual man be flamboyant, fun, and over-the-top demonstrative? Why not? What, you're going to shove him over and say, no, you have to be gay. Why are you doing that? Why can't he just be jazz fingers all the time? <laughs> why can't a heterosexual woman be great at numbers, great at math, great at engineering, and not want to do crafting while sipping tea? 
Why can't effeminate boys be directed and channeled to how to be the best young heterosexual men they can be without unnecessarily changing their identity? Why can't masculine-oriented women be encouraged to be strong and aggressive, but still be a heterosexual career woman and a mom? You guys, this is what I'm trying to push on you. I'm trying to say I don't think we're giving enough room for people to live. We're making everyone jump whole categories. I talked about our paradigm, our continuum, and I explained that the desire to be affirmed is so deep that, that that category in our schools is skyrocketing. Why? Because now it's a place to belong. If the tough boys don't like you, there's a place you can go. If the girly girls don't like you, there's a place you can go. You used to have the jocks table and the stoners table and the skaters table. Now you got the LGBTQ table. And they're going to be the only folks that don't judge you. Is that how it has to be for our kids? Or can they just live and be who they are? Let me resettle into our main theme as we close. Y'all, the transgenderism struggle is real. So many more young people these days are growing up feeling like they don't belong in their own bodies. They're not saying it to try to look good. It's not about being cool. It's not about wanting to buck a system. It's about feeling like they're going crazy the way they are, that they're trapped in the wrong identity. So the question that matters to me more than anything else I've said today, this question, how can we walk alongside them and love them and bring Jesus into their story? Amen? We are about to hear a testimony that will be read um, by a friend of ours. She did not write the testimony. That the family that wrote it are walking in the middle of their child transitioning. It's so raw. It's so painful. It's so true that they're not going to be able to hold it together to come up here and share with you. They're not interested in outing their child. They're not interested in causing unnecessary harm. But they were willing to tell their story in the midst of it before it's all fixed and easy. And that story is now going to be read by Ashley Saren. Would you welcome Ashley Saren? What an honor it is to bring our story before each and every person who can hear this voice. Our hearts overflow with gratitude toward our loving Father and the God of peace, who now shapes these words. Our prayer is that as you listen to our story, God will highlight for you some principles that will resonate and remain with you. As a disclosure up front, we will be referring to our child as they instead of him or her. It wasn't unlike any other weekday. We had finished dinner and were sitting in the family room visiting. Both of us noticed that our child seemed uncomfortable and edgy. As it would turn out, they were mustering the courage to have a very difficult conversation with us. We remember it like it was yesterday. 
They began to ask us if we understood what they were going through. Up to that point, we knew they had been struggling with intense depression and anxiety and had also been diagnosed with body dysphoria several months earlier. Body dysphoria? What in the world was that? An immediate search of the internet began to shed light on why this kid never seemed to be comfortable in their own skin. We would go on to learn that body dysphoria is an extreme form of discomfort and intense feelings of shame that result from perceived imperfections in the physical body. Yeah, but doesn't everybody experience some level of discomfort with body imperfections? Yes, many do. So then what differentiates body dysphoria from the more normal discomfort? Those with body dysphoria experience persistent and intrusive thoughts about the perceived flaw or flaws, resulting in an inability to function normally. Reflecting back to their question, did we understand what they were going through, the answer was most certainly no. We certainly did not understand what they were going through, nor could we even relate. As our child continued on, we noticed them becoming teary-eyed and saw that their body language was very closed, very guarded. They talked about how much it hurt to exist, how they had tried to ignore the feelings, but that they refused to go away. Then they announced they felt they had always been in the wrong body. It was not until the last year, however, that they came to understand that they were transgender. At that moment, much like the day they were born, our lives changed. We felt instantly transformed from the average Christian family into something we couldn't even define. A wave of grief, disbelief, and confusion washed over us. They continued to share, but we remember not even being able to hear what was being said as a profusion of thoughts raced through our minds in those initial moments. Wait, gather yourself together. They're still sitting here looking at us for a reaction. Next thought, how do we respond? Even though it felt like we were dying on the inside, we knew our response to this sharing would characterize our family culture going forward. And so, on the fly, and with tears of simultaneous grief and compassion, we calmed ourselves and began to ask some questions and open a dialogue. Looking back, this was the first good decision we made. It set the tone for future conversations where love, Mutual respect and acknowledgement of differences could be exchanged in a safe environment. The announcement forced us to reflect on our faith. There are several boulders which can come stampeding towards us on the path of life. Many, like our scenario, cause one to really take a step back and reconsider things that we've perhaps taken for granted. Perhaps you or someone you know has had a boulder land in your lap unexpectedly. It can be a faith-shaking experience for sure. Like many parents of those in the LGBTQ community, the first question that came up for us was, what caused this? Are we to blame? Did we do something wrong? Have we failed God? We couldn't figure it out and neither could our child. To this day, they do not blame us for being transgender. They are as stumped as we are. Yes, there had been discipline and boundaries in an attempt to parent well. We attended the same parenting classes that many of you might have. In fact, up to that point, we felt pretty good about our role as parents. One of us gave up a career to stay home with the kids. We raised our children to love Jesus, and all our children came to salvation. 
There was no abuse, no molestation, no sexual violation, no alcoholism, no drugs. But there was a premature birth and a concussion. Was the premature birth or the concussion responsible? In our story, we came to realize it wasn't relevant. We were now staring reality in the face that the only way to look was up at Jesus and forward to the future. We decided to leave the why with the Lord, and that has been a very liberating thing. One thing you'll hear Lance emphasize is the fact that each and every story is individual and complex. We've heard it said, well, you know, if you've met one trans, you've met one trans. The point being that you have not met them all. There are too many variables that contribute to each person's story. We have chosen to respect that fact and are much less apt to rush to conclusions about why people do think or say things. We understand that ultimately, each man will stand before his master. All right, next challenge. What does the Bible say about transgender people? Well, you learned tonight that it's somewhat unclear. In our situation, the child is not experiencing same-sex attraction. No, this is not the struggle today. It's an identity crisis and one that is not going away unless God moves in a miraculous way. We feel the most relevant scriptures dealing with identity have to do with our identity in Christ, as Lance shared earlier. Okay, but what if the child has become so disillusioned with the struggle that they have given up hope in God? Yes, this has happened in our child's case. You see, in their world, if they stick with God, they believe there will be no relief. The torment of gender dysphoria will be their daily companion. So they are walking away from God. To be honest, this is the part that breaks us up the most. God willing, tomorrow our child will be another day older and able to contemplate spiritual issues from a more mature perspective. Will they have already dipped into hormone treatment? Surgery? We don't know. We live one day at a time and trust Him with our tomorrows. How about showing unconditional love without compromising our faith? You see, we believe God created this child with a specific gender. They are not intersex. We also believe that what God created is sacred. Male and female, He created them. Our child has chosen as of today to turn away from this conviction and turn instead to the path of this world, which promises relief. While we also believe that as an adult, our child is of the age of accountability. We have been upfront with regard to where we stand. However, and this is a very important point, our love is not offered with a contingency plan. If you cross-dress, we still love you and want you in our family. If you take hormones or have surgery, we still love you and you belong in our family. If you stop taking hormones, we still love you and you belong in our family. Can we prepare for every situation? No. What if they come to us and tell us they're getting married? This hasn't happened in our story, but it might. Do we go to the wedding because we love and want to support them as a person? Or is our going representative of affirming a lifestyle that we believe is outside of the will of God? See, it gets complicated. There's nothing quick or easy about it. Here's what we can say with regard to the practical aspect of loving. 
Somehow, some way, God makes a way where there seems to be no way. He has given us grace to get this far. Why would we think he wouldn't lavish us with wisdom and grace for the next situation? When our child told us they were trans, we immediately felt a death. But why? The child was fully alive and sitting right in front of us. Nevertheless, the feelings were inescapable. We felt betrayal, like we weren't sure who this person really was, and overwhelming grief. It was the beginning of a journey we wish we didn't have to take. With time, we began to make sense of why we felt death. Something did indeed die. We realized that so much of our love and affection for the child was rooted in their gender role. We knew them as their gender. Yes, we were certainly experiencing death the death of dreams associated with their gender, of having a traditional family, of having grandchildren to dote on. All of these, in the traditional sense, had been sacrificed, and we felt it. Nevertheless, with time and prayer and consoling one another and tears and reflection and processing all the aspects of this situation, we are here to tell you that we have made it out the other side. What's more, we are still singing praises to God. It took time, time, time. We have been purposeful about educating ourselves about being transgender and have become much more aware of what's happening in the hearts of those who struggle with it. God has been faithful to comfort us despite our concerns. What has all this time and reliance on God done for us? It has freed us up to be present for our child. Instead of grief, we walk in joy. Instead of anger, of why me, we are thanking God that they are still with us. Our child's life and their decisions are theirs to own. We are not defined by our child's choices. Instead, we choose to be defined by what God says about us. Do their choices impact us? Yes, of course they do. Can their choices inflict pain? Yes. But our reliance on God far exceeds anything this world can dish out. And because of this, we take great joy. By the way, the story isn't finished yet. There is still hope that our child will allow God back into their life. How do we know the current situation isn't part of a future testimony? Who are we to say that heart change will not happen? What looks impossible today is not impossible with God. We are looking forward to many more sweet memories with our child, regardless of the path they choose. We want to end this story with another short one. One of us was raised in such a way to dismiss, dehumanize, and disrespect people in the LGBTQ community. You can imagine the impact of suddenly having one of your children join that community. It is one of those hard things that God uses to break open our hearts. Today, the perspective is much different. Every opportunity to extend kindness, eye contact, a smile, A handshake, a hug, a conversation is taken. And you know what? It turns out they're just people like you and me who need and want love and kindness. What an excellent way to minister the love of God to others. Thank you for letting us share our story.
We are super thankful for the family that took the time to anonymously write out their thoughts and their experience. And we're extremely thankful for Ashley for reading that for all of us here. Um, because again, we, we need to understand all these very personal levels of this. And so as you know, we're gonna enter into our, our learning and processing of the material at our tables. And again, we're always doing that with very foundational direction. And so just to remind you that we have ground rules that we've been encouraging you to follow. They're not on your tables tonight because we know you memorized them. Um, but just to review them, it's just those are aspects of listen respectfully without interrupting, um, have a commitment to learning, not debating, keep discussion focused on the questions, allow everyone a chance to share, and make sure that you're sharing, not trying to teach, because we want you to be learning on a different level here. And so we encourage you to, to just remember that, to be civil. Like I said earlier, maybe if you've already talked a lot in, at your table the last two weeks, maybe let more people talk at your table. And if you have not spoken, maybe, maybe tonight's the night you can share a little bit more of what your mind is processing and what you're stirring on so that everyone gets those opportunities. You're gonna have two questions again that you're able to cover that are gonna be up on the screen as well as your facilitators have those questions and they also have a third optional question just in case. But the first question is really, how does our identity in Christ practically cause us or lead us to live out our lives? And that's really reflecting on that identity piece Pastor Lance was talking about. And then number two is where in life have you experienced connection with someone that wasn't fitting a normal stereotype? And so that's talking about some of those gender pieces he was talking about at the end. And it has a second part to it. How has God used someone outside of what you typically expect? So go ahead and we're gonna give you 35 minutes or so to discuss this at the tables and then we'll wrap up at the end of that.